0: So, what would Christianity be if you took away all of the miracles in it? Have you ever thought about that question before? If no Christian miracles were actually true, what would be left of Christianity? Um, now, C.S. Lewis he he wrote a lesser-known book you probably haven't even heard of it before called God in the Dock, um, and in that he actually reflects on that question. Apparently, as he says in it, he got asked that question a lot. Um, And his answer, in typical Lewis fashion, is very thought-provoking and eloquent. And he said this to answer that question of what would Christianity be without miracles? He says this, Now it seems to me that precisely the one religion in the world, or at least the one I know, the only one I know, with which you could not remove its miracles is Christianity. In a religion like Buddhism, if you took away the miracles attributed to Buddha, there would be no loss. In fact, the religion would get on very much better without them because in in the case of miracles, they largely contradict its teachings. Or even in the case of a religion like Islam, nothing essential would be altered if you took away the miracles. You could have a great prophet preaching his dogmas without bringing in any miracles. But... You cannot possibly do that with Christianity because the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, which is uncreated, eternal, namely God, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. If you take that away, there's nothing specifically Christian left. There may be many admirable human things with Christianity which Christianity shares with all other systems in the world, but there would be nothing specifically Christian. Redeemer, I bring that up this morning because today and tomorrow we celebrate that miracle. Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation. And when I say incarnation, That's a technical term to describe what Lewis is talking about. The fact that God took on flesh and became human. That an uncreated, eternal being came into nature with us. Have you ever stopped to ponder how profoundly incredible that idea is? It is the most miraculous, mysterious event in all of history. Think about it. How can an infinite eternal, omniscient, all-powerful spiritual being who is greater than and beyond the entire universe condescend into a finite, physical, limited, and weak human body. Let's take something else that's, that's amazing to us just in comparison. Consider a neutron star. Some of you probably don't know what a neutron star is. If you don't know what it is, it's a star that is roughly one and a half to three times the mass of our sun. So really, really big. It's huge. But it's dying. And because it's dying, it doesn't have enough energy to maintain its own size. And so it begins to collapse and condense in on itself. But it maintains the same mass, So again, you have this star that's one and a half to three times the size, the mass of our sun. So normally gargantuan, way, way, way bigger than our sun. But because it's dying, it shrinks and condenses. And it shrinks so much that it's the size of Chicago. Just just try to imagine that. Something three times the mass of our sun condensed and compressed down to roughly the size of Chicago. It's crazy. It's so dense that the protons and electrons within the star merge and combine and form neutrons to to condense the space. That's where it gets its name. The neutron star gets its name because all of the protons and electrons actually form neutrons because of the density. It's the densest thing in the universe. We cannot fathom how remarkable and how unique that is. But even a neutron star falls infinitely short of demonstrating what took place in the incarnation. Ultimately, all a neutron star is just a finite amount of matter condensed really, really tightly. The incarnation, though, is an infinite, immaterial being becoming a baby, a spirit who has no beginning or end, who is greater than an infinite number of universes, becoming a physical human child. It's mind-blowing to think about. We, we will never be able to fully understand what took place in the incarnation. As C.S. Lewis put it, it's the one grand miracle. The child born that night in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago embodies the most astounding thing that has ever happened, will ever happen, and could ever happen. We will never fully understand the incarnation, as I said, but it did happen. It is the foundation of everything in Christianity. We lose the Christian faith if we lose the incarnation. But again, like I said, it really did happen, and that is what we are celebrating at Christmas so, with that said, I want us to look at a Christmas text, a text that gives us the account of what took place um, at Jesus's birth. So, if you can turn to Luke two, verses one through twenty-one. I forgot to look up what pages that is in, so you'll have to look it up on your own. But we're going to look up, we're going to read through Luke two, verses one through twenty-one this morning. Um, we're going to see the account of Jesus's birth and. As you follow along, as I read it, think about, don't, don't just listen to what can come across to us at times as just a generic story that we've heard time and time again. Reflect on how miraculous and extraordinary this story really is, given what we were just talking about. This is no mere baby being born. This is God incarnate. So again, follow along with me as I read Luke 2, verses 1 through 21. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went out from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, there are so many things that we can focus on this morning in terms of this story and the account of Jesus' birth. What I want to focus on, though, is the purpose behind it. I want to answer the questions, why the incarnation? Why did God put on flesh and become a man? I I wanted us to look at this text specifically because not only does it tell us of the birth, we get to look at that story and just be amazed by it, but it also gives us the answer to that why question. This passage tells us the purpose for which Jesus came. Look again with me at verses 10 through 14. It says this, and the angel said to them, fear not, The story climaxes when Jesus' birth is announced and then the multitude of the heavenly host cries out and praises God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We see the, in the angel's words a beautiful explanation of why Jesus became a man and why we are celebrating the greatest moment in all of history. Jesus came to earth to display God's glory and to give us peace. That was his twofold purpose. So, that is what we're going to consider this morning. I want God's glory and our peace to be at the forefront of our minds this Christmas holiday. Don't waste this celebration. Don't merely think about just family and presents and holiday traditions. Those things are all good, but they are nothing compared to what Jesus did. When he came to this earth. So rejoice in him. Be in awe of him. Celebrate him above all things this holiday season. Let the angel's words be the climax of your own Christmas this year. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So let's look at the first reason Jesus came to earth, and that's God's glory. Now, one thing that strikes me right off the bat when I consider this passage, when I was meditating through it and just reflecting on it, is the involvement of angels in Jesus' birth. First, but even before we get to this passage in Luke 2, we know that angels foretold of John's, John the Baptist's and Jesus' birth. So, angels came as messengers to announce that both John the Baptist and Jesus would be born. Then, in Luke 2, we have angels going to the shepherds to tell them that Jesus was born. And then right after that angel announces that, a multitude of angels, in other words, a ton of them, show up and begin praising God. This is striking to me because there's pretty much no other time in history, at least from what we see in Scripture, when there is this much angelic activity going on other than perhaps the book of Revelation. But even in the book of Revelation, if you think about it, the reason we see so much angelic activity is because much of the book is getting us to look into heaven and what is taking place there during the last days. This is different, though. What we see here is angels coming down and actually interacting with with events on earth in an unparalleled degree. And I bring that up because that should highlight for us how glorious Jesus' birth is. Think about it. If it were just mere humans rejoicing and being involved in this situation, that would be one thing. But these are angels. These are beings who, when people see them in Scripture, even as we saw in this passage, they almost always fall down in fear and awe. Angels are so incredible to behold that we would be tempted to worship them. And those are the beings rejoicing in this passage. These are the beings who are the messengers in this situation. They're not the ones being highlighted and esteemed. They're just the messengers of the one who is to come. And it's not just one angel, it's many of them. Verse 14 is probably talking about thousands of angels praising God in this moment, reflecting on and rejoicing at what just took place. The greatness and the number of the angelic host singing the praises at Jesus' birth should tell us something about him. This is no insignificant person being born. This is a person who is so mighty so glorious, so important that even the angels bow down before him in reverence. So don't overlook that part of this story here. Sometimes the beauty of the Christmas story can be lost on us because we're not seeing it in person. We're just reading about it. And sometimes, again, we've heard it a lot, especially if you've grown up in a Christian home. You've heard the, the Christmas story so often and so it can become almost mundane to us. It can be just like any other story of a child being born, but it's not. Try to imagine it. When I imagine verses 13 and 14 in, in Luke 2, it, it makes me reflect on Handel's Messiah, the hallelujah chorus of that, of that piece. Um, and I was actually, I, I like listened to it over and over again as I was preparing this sermon. Um. If you haven't listened to it recently, I I encourage you to go home after service and actually listen to it yourself. It is such an incredible piece of music. When I listen to it, it actually gives me chills. Um, It's just so powerful and moving to to just be surrounded by. Um, But just think about how much greater the scene in verse 14 is. Really stop and picture that. Thousands of heavenly angels actually shining with light because of the glory surrounding them with perfect voices, with perfect pitch, perfect harmony and unison, singing praises to God. If we witnessed such a scene, we would be brought to tears by the magnificence of it. We would be dumbfounded by the majesty that we're beholding. And that was all for Jesus. And that is only the start of the glory that Jesus' birth revealed. To get to the heart of it, we have to consider who Jesus is in relation to humanity. And the key is looking back at verse 11. So look again at that. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We see three different titles given to Jesus just in this one sentence. He is Savior, Christ, And Lord. So let's consider each of those things. Jesus is our Savior. He saves people who could not save themselves and each other. He brings a salvation that we could not have otherwise. And we'll get more to that later. But He is also the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah that we see oftentimes in the Old Testament. He's the long-awaited king and ruler that the Israelites had been prophesying of for centuries before this. He was to lead and guide and protect them. They longed for him. They awaited him eagerly. But even more than that, he's the Lord. In other words, he is actually God. If you think that it's a jump for me to say that, look at verse 9. It says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. When the word Lord is used there, it's referring to God the Father. And it's the same word being used in verse 11. The angel is literally saying that Jesus is God. He's not merely some earthly king. He's not some great hero that's come but is still ultimately just a man or some like demigod or something. He is God incarnate. He is the embodiment of God on earth. Consider Micah 5, verses 2 through um, the first part of 5. of Yeah, of 5. It says, "...but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel." and he shall be their peace. Jesus is the foretold ruler who would stand and shepherd his flock in what? In the strength of the Lord, as that says, and in the majesty of the Lord. And how is he able to do that? Because he actually is the Lord. Or listen to Isaiah 9, uh, verse 2, and then verses 6 and 7. We already looked at part of this passage earlier. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Among other things, he is our mighty God, as that passage explicitly says. Jesus came to this earth to reveal his glory to mankind. He wasn't the kind of powerful ruler and leader that we typically think about. And because of that, he was largely ignored and even hated by people during his time on earth. But in coming to earth, Jesus brought the majesty of God with him. And we are just now beginning to be able to understand the glory that he revealed in his coming to earth. When you think about Jesus, do you imagine just like a relatable person who had really good morals and upstanding character? Or do you picture a transcendent, holy God that is far beyond us? The crazy thing is, is that he is both. That is the mystery of the incarnation. And that is what is so glorious about our God. What religion has a God like that? He is not a God like you hear about in other religions or read about in so many books, who is distant or unlike his people. And that's actually something that even disappoints me about The Lord of the Rings. As much as I love those books, I use analogies and illustrations from them all the time in my sermons, as much as I love them, it disappoints me how totally absent the god of Middle-earth is from the story. If you haven't read The Silmarillion, which is kind of like the mythology and precursor to Lord of the Rings, you probably didn't even know that there actually is a god in that world. But there is. His name is Eru Iluvatar. Interesting name. But there is a God of middle earth. The problem is that, is that he never enters into the world or the character's lives in the story. Our God doesn't have that problem. Our God is better than that. He is both holy yet intimate with us. He understands our human experience because he entered into that experience too. And in doing that, his glory is made even clearer to us. That's why Paul writes this in Philippians two, verses five through eleven. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the, like, born in the likeness of men, and Jesus is exalted specifically because he came to earth and took on flesh. Now, you guys, we are slow on the uptake. We struggle to see that. Even as Christians, we daily lose sight of just how profound and incredible Jesus' incarnation is. Jesus is not receiving from us the full praise and worship that he will one day, but The angels knew. They understood how incredible his birth was. God was entering into creation. He was connecting with it in ways that we could never imagine, expect, or even deserve. And they sang glory to God because of it. So as you celebrate this Christmas, meditate on that. Meditate on how blessed we are to have a God who is not far and unsympathetic, Imagine what it would be like to have a God who never interacted with us or with his creation at all. It would be horrible. It would be depressing to think about. But that is not our God. He is near and he understands. He has entered into our existence with us. That is the glorious Lord we have. Rejoice in him this Christmas. And it gets even better than that. He brought glory when he came to this earth that we get to praise him for, but he also brought us peace. So let's turn our attention to that now. To understand why that's such a big deal, that we have peace now, we need to first understand what state we would be in without the incarnation. As Matthew 4 verse 16 says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's talking about Jesus' coming. So, what is the darkness that we would be in without him? That's where a couple other passages from the New Testament help us really understand and grasp the gravity of it. Galatians 4 verses three through five speak to this and help us understand that. It says this, in Galatians four, three through five, it says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time has, had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Hebrews 2 actually speaks to this as well. In verses 14 through 15, it talks about the state we would be in without the incarnation. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What are those passages telling us? What are they saying about the darkness into which Jesus has dawned? They're talking about a darkness of enslavement, bondage to a law that we couldn't obey. We were controlled by the devil. We were orphans, destined for spiritual death. Those ver- verses speak to all of those things. Does that sound like peace to you? Does that sound like an occasion for joy? Without Jesus Christ, we have no peace or joy. Without the Incarnation, humanity's fate, and the fate of every single one of us, therefore, would be the most terrible fate imaginable. In fact, It would be far worse than what we could ever imagine. Our fate would be incomprehensibly dark. Since Adam and Eve, every one of us has enslaved ourselves to our sin. We love the darkness. But in our blindness, we have no idea how we have cut ourselves off from God and earned his wrath. We have earned ourselves a penalty that we cannot bear Without the incarnation, we would all face an eternity of torment and the deepest state of loneliness. But again, as I said at the beginning, the incarnation has happened. And because Jesus came, he has brought us peace. As Micah 5 said earlier, he is our peace even. Not that he just brought it, but he is our peace. And as Isaiah 9 said earlier, he is the prince of peace. And it's because, as Galatians 4 said, he has redeemed us from the law that we wouldn't obey, and he has caused us to be adopted as as children into the family of God if we place our faith in him. As Hebrews 2 goes on to say after the verses that I just quoted a couple minutes ago, For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is why Jesus came. That is what he accomplished. He functions as our merciful and faithful high priest, he is a propitiation for our sins. He paid the penalty for them so that we don't have to. In Luke 2, verse 14, the angels again sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They sang of peace because of what Jesus was born to do. Jesus was born to die. He came to pay the price for our sins and, that none of us could pay for ourselves. He came to restore the relationship with God that we destroyed and could not repair, even that we don't even want to repair apart from his work in our hearts. But for our good, he has restored that relationship so that we might be saved. He is our mediator. And as we looked at earlier, he was born to be our Savior, Christ, and Lord he was born so that he could die on the cross and fulfill those roles faithfully for us. Friends, this is something we should rejoice in every single day of the year, not just at Christmas time, but we do that especially at Christmas. So let's meditate on that. Let's rejoice in that today and tomorrow. The greatest gift we receive is nothing that we get from each other, it is the news that God came to earth. To save us from ourselves. It is the greatest rescue story ever. And by faith, we can be a part of that. Apart from Him, we have no peace. We spend our entire lives trying to find it and create it for ourselves, but we can't. I know you know what I'm talking about. We so often are ashamed, we're restless, we're fearful. We know that there is something wrong within us. We can't, and we can't do enough to make those feelings go away. But praise be to God that Jesus offers us freedom. By seeking Him and trusting in Him, you, you can have the peace that surpasses all understanding peace with God, peace with yourself, and peace with others. Believe that through His sacrifice, you are forgiven. Believe that through his perfect life, you are made righteous. Believe that through him, you are a child of God. Because of that, you can face the hardships that this life brings with hope. Because, you ha- because of that, you can forgive and love others even though it is difficult. Because of that, you can accept your own weaknesses and shortcomings with joy. Be at peace. Jesus was born so, so that you could be. And don't do that just now. Know that we have even more of that awaiting us in the future. Here, here's a crucial thing that I think we oftentimes lose sight of at Christmas time. Don't just look back at the Nativity at Christmas time. Jesus' first coming should cause us to long for his next one. Remember that Jesus has promised to come again. And that is when the full effects of his incarnation will finally be felt and experienced in our lives. That is when his glory will be fully displayed to us. That is when the peace that he has promised us will be fully experienced and known what we are experiencing now is only a shadow of the glory and the peace that is to come. But when he does come again, his coming will bring a glory and peace that we have never known before. Our joy in him will be complete. Redeemer, Christmas is not just a time to look backwards into history. Do that. Look back and marvel at the birth of our Lord. But then look forward too. Celebrate what happened 2,000 years ago, but also celebrate what is still to come. Long for the day when you will behold Christ in all of his glory as both man and God. And long for the day when your heart will be at peace, true and complete peace in him. To those who have placed their faith in Christ, the incarnation means both a past, present, and future glory and peace for us to experience and know. So let's rejoice in that miracle this Christmas season. Will you pray with me towards that end? Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for sending your Son to us. Thank you that at this time of the year, we get to focus and meditate and reflect on that so much God, help us to not get distracted by all the things going on, all the travel and family and traditions and gifts and all these good things. God, let us not be distracted by them at this time. But God, help us to meditate on the glory and majesty and peace that came when Jesus was born. And God, help us to set our sights forward to his return. God, let this be a time of rejoicing in Him. God, we pray this in His name. Amen.